0: Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. Our reading today is from the book of Acts. It's uh, from the fifth chapter, uh, verses 27 through 32. These words, When they had brought them, They had them stand before the council. Now they is the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin, and they is the apostles. The priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching." and you are determined to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand, as leader and savior, that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Uh, Earlier this week, on Monday evening, Five of our St. Paul's youth embarked on their confirmation journeys with Liz Flagg and Todd Vosper. The first two sessions of their classes focus on Methodism. What makes our denomination distinctive within the grand, almost 2,000 year old sweep? of Christianity. Now, notice I did not say better. I said distinctive. Last Monday, the class learned about the origins of Methodism. Tomorrow, they're going to focus on some of our core values and doctrines. Now, I suspect that many of us who are here, even if we are cradle Methodists, would be hard-pressed to reel off some of Methodism's core values and doctrines. And others may ask, "Um, does it really matter? Isn't it enough to just be Christian? In pondering uh, this all week, I, I was pondering this all week as I reflected on this reading uh, from Acts 5, the book of Acts, which is actually a sequel uh, to the book of Luke, it's uh, written by the same person, uh, is structured according to the command that God, uh, that Jesus gives to his apostles in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth that we are even here today reveals how their message was spread to all the ends of the earth. But today's reading is part of a larger story about the apostles' initial preaching while they are still in Jerusalem. It's before they've fanned out into Judea and Samaria and then to all of the earth. What's happened is that earlier in Acts 5, the high priest has had the apostles arrested and and they're jailed. But in the middle of the night, an angel intervenes and and frees the apostles uh, from their prison cell even before they're questioned. And so the apostles immediately go and start doing the same thing that got them arrested in the first place. And so they are re-arrested. And uh, and then verses 27 through 32, our reading this morning, comprises the accusation that has been made against the apostles and their response. And Acts is going to go on, and it will tell us that the apostles are arrested many times, uh, both by religious and governmental authorities. But in In this passage, in response to the high priest's questioning, Peter uses this phrase in verse 32. He says, and we are witnesses to these things. And that links uh, Peter's testimony back to what Jesus had said in chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses. Well, this morning, as our confirmands are up in the balcony, and for their sake and ours, I want to lift up some of what makes our United Methodist witness distinctive. Indeed, I think vital within the broader scope of Christianity, perhaps especially vital in this time that we are now in. But before I do that, I want to briefly address that question that I mentioned at the the beginning of the sermon, does it really matter? Isn't it enough to just be Christian? Well, the obvious answer is yes, but I think it depends on whether we're using the word Christian as a noun or as an adjective. When the word Christian is first used in Acts 11.26, it's as a noun. The Greek word christianos, which means little Christ. It was first used as a derisive term. It was a put-down, applied to those whose lifestyles clearly and unmistakably demonstrated a commitment to Jesus' life and teachings. Those who lived in that way stood out in their society. Not because of their abrasive rhetoric or because of their political ambitions or anything like that, but by their lifestyles of love and service that mirrored the way that Jesus had lived and taught. Now, I think most of us would agree that these days, the word Christian is used more as an adjective, a label, which means that things can be labeled as Christian without any reference to if they are consistent with Jesus' life and teaching. Rob Bell uh, was a megachurch pastor, evangelical megachurch pastor. He's since stepped out of ministry. And he points out that political groups that claim to be Christian put him in a very awkward position. He writes, What if I disagree with them? Am I less of a Christian? What if I am convinced that the Christian thing to do is to vote the exact opposite? So the labels ultimately fail no matter how useful they are from time to time because the life of Jesus is just that, a life that is lived by people who have oriented their entire lives around being true to Jesus. And this is how Methodism got started in the 18th century. Uh, the Wesley brothers, they were, the, they were PKs, preacher's kids, uh, and uh, John and Charles. And they saw how the, the lives of those who attended church were really not all that different from anyone else's life. And and so the underlying energy that got Methodism going was an emphasis on something called practical divinity. Not just believing, not just saying the right things, but implementing Jesus' teachings in our lives. As Christianos, as little Christ. Now, ironically, just as that term Christianos was originally a put-down, so was the term Methodist. It was a put-down uh, to those who were striving to live lives of, uh, of practical divinity, kind of like, oh, goes goody-two-shoes, <laughs> those Methodists. And that's why our three simple rules, though, practical divinity, do good, do no harm, stay in love with God through practices of of prayer and Bible reading and worship and and things that help build and deepen our connection to God. But here now, speaking a little bit more personally, I want to say or share five things that I have valued about our United Methodist Heritage, And I should say heri- uh, Methodist heritage because United Methodism didn't emerge until 1968. So that's rather recent, but it, it, I'm going all the way back uh, to, to Wesley now. So first, as Jesus did, United Methodists have, have valued extending a wide, gracious, and loving embrace, especially towards those who are at the margins of society. The church that I think that many non-church people are yearning for today is a community of faith that has a but-free love that is at the center of its life and vision. Now, that will be a memorable phrase. What I mean by that is that we strive to be those who do not say We love you but, we love you if, we love you when. It's love (laughs) that people should experience when they come into the doors of of a Methodist church. Uh, This quote from a United Methodist pastor found its way onto the sign of the Madison Avenue Baptist Church uh, recently and expresses the ethos that many of us were nurtured in. At the end of the day, I would rather be excluded for who I include rather than included for those I exclude. One of the chief and most frequent criticism of Jesus was what? That he kept hanging out with all the wrong people. You know, the people that the Scripture said should be avoided, even shunned. And so an openness to all as deeply loved by God has been something that has characterized our denomination I should say, when we are at our best, when we're at our best. And that leads to a second way that uh, we focused on practical divinity. Uh, More important than being scripturally correct, United Methodists tend to focus on Christ-likeness, developing Christ-likeness. Countless surveys over the last couple decades have indicated that the vast majority of people in the United States, when they hear the word Christian, the first thing they think of is judgmental. Is there anything more antithetical to Jesus? We've been doing something wrong. That's not enough to say, well, they're just not understanding who we are. No, I think they might understand very well. Because Jesus showed us the model for living uh, non-judgmentally, a non-judgmental way of relating to the world and to others. And, And so we have traditionally sought to focus our discipleship on being merciful and compassionate and forgiving. Do you think the world might see that as a little different in these days? One of the most, I think one of the most important sermon series that I preach was actually during the pandemic uh, called A More Christ-like Christianity. Seven-week series began back July 20th, 2020. The reason I'm telling you the date is you can subscribe to our podcast. We did not have a podcast pre-pandemic, but... You can go and listen to those messages, and you can listen to them more than once. Uh, But I think this was a really important series, because I think what the world is yearning for is a more Christ-like Christianity. Now, our prioritization prioritization of Christ-likeness does not mean that we do not take Scripture seriously. Um, Indeed, our emphasis on practical divinity has typically led us deeper into Scripture. It has led us to be strongly biblical while stopping short of bibliolatry, which is an uh, excessive adherence to literalism. That's not where we are because that's not where most of Christianity has ever been. So the third thing that I value about our tradition is that the Bible is foundational. Even as the Bible is foundational, we have a dynamic view of Scripture as being the living word, which is a concept that is grounded in Scripture, (laughs) Um, we note in particular that when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, you remember that story at the beginning of Lent, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, the diabolos, uh, the adversary, uh, Satan, whatever terminology the gospels use, they'll use different terminology, quotes scripture to Jesus several times and, and quotes it correctly. But it's not right. And that can happen. Several times in scripture that the Bible is quoting things that people are saying that are wrong, that are not the word of God. Um, We also note and take seriously that the Apostle Paul uh, writes this in 2 Corinthians. He says, You, meaning the Christianos at the church in Corinth, you are our epistle you show us that you are Christ's letter delivered by us. This is the important part. You were not written in ink, but with the spirit of the living God. You weren't written on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Well, that's a reference to the Ten Commandments. Paul is saying that The word, the living word, that's in us is on par certainly with the Ten Commandments, what people see in us. That's biblical. (laughs) Now, uh, if you want to explore this more, I I recommend uh, the book Making Sense of the Bible by the Reverend Adam Hamilton. I have 13 copies of this. If you want a copy, I will give it to you. Uh, it's worth it, your time. In particular, the middle five chapters, the middle five chapters chapters—are uh, address questions about the nature and authority of Scripture. And I really wish uh, he would publish just those, you know, in a smaller book uh, for people, so that whenever you walk into a Methodist church, and I wouldn't just say Methodist, I would say any Protestant church that is uh, not fundamentalist, I would say this is the way that we understand Scripture. It's much more dynamic uh, than, I'm trying to think of a nice word, than, um, than what, what inerrancy doctrine proclaims. <laughs> so, uh, A fourth aspect of practical uh, divinity is our missional character. The idea that our church does not exist for itself, but most especially for others beyond our walls. This this runs right up against our consumeristic mentality these days where, you know, we go to church to be nourished and and get a pep talk for the week and then go out and we're ready to go. No, we, we go out to serve. As one theologian writes, our our fundamental orientation is outward, spun out in a life of the world to wage peace, work for justice, and to emulate the beloved community that God desires for all people. So while some churches are distinctly evangelical and other churches are decidedly focused on social justice, the history of the United Methodist Church brings both of those together. It's convergent. And do you know why? Because that's what Scripture teaches us. And it's what Christ-likeness demands. So none of this silliness about social justice being some sort of communist plot. Certainly there are are some organizations that uh, we might be troubled by. But the concept of social justice, just as uh, sharing the gospel, is grounded in Scripture. And if you haven't seen it, probably haven't spent enough time in Scripture. <laughs> Finally, while well, you would be right to think uh, that grace is something that all churches value, our heritage has stressed our ability, even our responsibility, to grow in grace, not just to receive Jesus in our heart and wait for heaven. So given uh, what I've already said, I would say that something that makes us distinctive is that while many churches and denominations uh, stress believing the right things, which is orthodoxy, you know that term, as the way of salvation the passion of Methodism has been translating God's love into action, which is orthopraxis, doing the right things as the way to salvation. But it's not that we don't get graced by that. We sent this out earlier this week, totally consistent with Methodism, even though it precedes Methodism by 1,300 years. Uh, Fourth century bishop Augustine, early leader of the church, we sent this out in our text messages. If you're not getting those, you can sign up for them. He said, for grace is not given because we have done good works, but in order that we may do them. It is a grace to be able to cooperate in God's uh, activity in the world. So now I can conclude by putting this all together back in this quote that I shared at our threshold moment. By salvation, I mean not barely according to the vulgar notion, deliverance from hell or going to heaven, but a present deliverance from sin. A restoration of the soul to its primitive health and its original purity a recovery of the divine nature, the renewal of our souls according to the image of God in righteousness and true holiness, in justice, mercy, and truth. This is a great witness to the gospel. Not just receive Jesus into your hearts, but rather make him the leader and Savior, as Peter proclaimed, of your entire lives. Let's be together in spirit of prayer. Holy God, uh, covered a lot of ground today. Uh, I pray that our some of what was said uh, finds its mark, and that uh, if anything... Uh, be an error, that you would rectify that in the, in the hearts of those who have heard it, especially our youth. But I do think, God, that we have a distinctive heritage, not better than, not superior to, but, but a great contribution to what the world needs from those who claim to follow you in this time. So we pray, God, that we mar- may participate in the grace that has been poured out upon our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.